Hey everybody, welcome back to the Texas Signal. This is Joe Bowen, and today I'm coming to you live from the Texas Democratic Party headquarters on the second day of Texas Tribune Fest, TribFest 2019. It has been a blast, and we're joined today by Lauren Pulley, the data director for the Texas Democratic Party. Lauren, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for doing this. I'm really excited that today's the day we get to have you on the podcast because I've spent my entire day in panels at TribFest hearing Republicans tell us that we can't actually turn Texas blue. And they seem to be fixated on the idea that if presidential turnout hits 10 or 11 million people, that the Republicans or the Democrats would need to get 5.5 million votes to win. Mm -hmm. That's pretty basic math. Yeah. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is the Republicans tend to get about four and a half million votes here in Texas, mm -hmm. meaning they would need to make up a million votes. Democrats get about four million, so we need a million and a half. Uh, but the math seems to be in favor of the Democrats, which is something that the Republicans didn't really seem to grasp. So could you walk us through what you think turnout's going to look like in 2020 and what that means for the Democrats? Yeah, absolutely. So we absolutely think that turnout's going to increase a lot. I mean, I think we're going to be at, at least at least 11. We might even see it go higher. A little bit hard to say, but we strongly believe the turnout's going to be through the roof. If we look at where turnout was in 2014, just north of 4 million to 2018, where we hit almost presidential levels in a midterm, and anybody's guess what's going to happen with turnout. And we think that's really, really good for the Democrats in Texas. In Texas, as turnout increases, so does the Democratic vote. And I agree with you. I'm not sure where the Republicans get the next million voters, but I'm very clear on where we do. In 2018, we saw 2.4 million registered but unvoting African-American, Hispanic, and AAPI voters. That's 2.4 million people who are already registered that we just need to turn out. In addition to that, we see potential to register up to 2.6 million people in Texas who are not registered, but if they were registered, would vote Democratic. That's almost 5 million voters for us to choose from to get that million and a half, and I just don't see the numbers adding up in any similar way for the Republicans. So one of the things that really bothered me is one of the panelists, uh, there was a panel called the Republican Do-Over, where mm -hmm. they talked about what the Republicans needed to do differently. One of the strategists that they had on that panel was Jeff Rowe, who of course was Ted Cruz's campaign manager and mm -hmm. his wildly unsuccessful campaign for president, <laughs> and then a senior advisor on his Senate race last year. Jeff said something so mind-boggling to me that I wanted to run it by you. Yeah. He said he wants every Texan to vote because the higher turnout goes, the better that is for Republicans. Could that possibly be true? No. No, the higher turnout goes, the better it is for Democrats. Cool. <laughs> yeah. That was a, a surprisingly declarative statement. Uh, but that seems like common sense, right? So we saw in Dallas County and in Harris County in this last cycle, we had huge explosions in turnout. That was nothing but good for the Democrats, and yeah. especially when you look at Harris County. Uh, Lena Hidalgo got elected county judge. Mm -hmm. We won everything that was on the ballot. Yep. Uh, and as we were looking at it, people who were very knowledgeable in Houston politics were telling me the magic number for Harris County is 1.2 million votes. If we get 1.2 million votes, no Democrat will lose an election in Harris County. We got to like 1.12, Democrats swept. Yeah. So we're going to see pretty much the same thing statewide, right? Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. As, as, we, as those numbers start to go up, we're going to see the Democratic performance improving. And a lot of that, I think, is about the changing demographic in Texas. Every day, we have hundreds of young voters who are turning 18 who are very much aligned with the Democratic values, the Democratic message. We see a lot of people moving to Texas from the coast, from other parts of the country. They're registering to vote, especially in our urban and our suburban strongholds, and they're voting Democratic. 
as the population is changing and as people are moving into Texas, we are becoming a democratic state. And as we register those people and we get them out to vote, we cross that threshold and Texas turns blue. One thing the Republicans said that I actually found to be true and interesting is when you think about what used to be like the Dallas suburbs. Mm -hmm. I bring this up because you're from Dallas. Yes. When you think about places like Frisco and McKinney, uh, these were definitely like small suburbs not that long ago. And yeah. when you look at things now, they're becoming urban centers of their own. And we started to see the shift in Collin County where it began to move more in a more pronounced way towards Democrats in 2020. Mm-hmm. Are we going to continue to see that? Because the growth we're seeing in the suburbs isn't just in Dallas-Fort Worth. It's also here in Central Texas and in Houston and Fort Bend County. Yep. And it seems like the people who are moving there are overwhelmingly Democrats who are coming from inside our inner cities or they're folks who are coming from different states who have Democratic voting histories. Absolutely. So we're, we're absolutely going to see as the suburbs grow, those continue to not only grow in size, but also grow in Democratic strongholds. I believe it's driven by a couple of things that you just mentioned. Both people who are were living in the urban strongholds and are getting a little bit older, want a little bit more space and are moving out to the suburbs. So those Democratic voters from the urban cities are moving to the suburbs. We also see people moving directly into the suburbs as industry and companies are moving themselves to the suburbs, either expanding from within Texas or moving from other states into Texas. We're absolutely seeing that suburban growth, and I think it continues to sort of exponentially grow and continues to be good for the Democrats. And what are the counties to watch for 2020 in terms of turnout? Where do you think it's going to be big? Yeah, so so the counties to watch, um, absolutely Tarrant County. That was the last kind of urban county that had been voting Republican in Texas. Uh, Beto, won, Beto won Tarrant County. We've got a competitive congressional district, several competitive state house districts, and it's going to be a really, really exciting place in the next in this next election. In addition to that, up in Dallas, we're seeing Collin and Denton. The margins are you know really, really narrowing over the last several cycles. Some really exciting races there and a lot of great organizing work that's going to show us continue to go blue. Fort Bend, one of the most diverse counties in the country, is really exciting. We've got a great congressional race there, some state house races. We're very excited about all of the Democrats who are voting and doing a lot of really great activism work in Fort Bend County. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about Fort Bend and Collin and Denton, we, and especially Tarrant, we have this kind of like magical opportunity in 2020. The population growth is there. The changing of the electorate is there, and we also have the majority of the seats that we need to win to take the state house majority, all yep. happening mostly in those four counties. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And what's really exciting to me as we look at all the activity and all the seats we need to win in 2020 is all the overlap. Mm-hmm. We look at the state house districts that we're looking at that were within 10 points, the state house districts that beta one at the Senate level that we're looking to flip. Those overlap with all of the competitive congressional districts that we're already seeing national investment in. And as we head towards 2020, that list of target districts is only going to continue to grow. And we're really excited about all the overlapping activity. That means voters that often haven't been contacted or haven't had competitive races are now being contacted through state house campaigns, competitive congressional campaigns, competitive presidential primaries, competitive U.S. Senate primaries. We're, we're a battleground state, and the voters are going to feel it, and it's really, really exciting. So one thing that I took away from the Fade to Blue panel, which featured John Busey and Aaron Weiner, who both won competitive Central Texas State House seats, Yep. the big question that Ross Ramsey had was, was this a one-off, or are these changes structural? And I think that you probably have a better answer for that than most people, because mm-hmm. you look at the numbers every day. 
Are these structural changes that we're seeing, are we at the beginning of a prolonged wave, or was 2018 really just an anomaly for the Republicans? See, it's absolutely a prolonged wave. And if you look at those districts in particular and the kinds of campaigns that both of those representatives ran and, and they are continuing to run through the great work that they're doing in their districts, we see all the structural changes that are being made. Uh, Representative Busey ran, you know, really a six-year campaign, has been working and working that district for a long time, getting involved, working with the grassroots activists and making sure that over the last several cycles, we've been increasing turnout, we've been increasing the percent Democrat, so that in 2018, he was able to flip that seat. We're so excited to have him representing us in the state house. And Zwiener, very similarly, registered a lot, a lot of voters. She and her daughter Lark were out there registering voters, knocking on doors from the week that Lark was born. And they engaged the students at Texas State in ways that they'd never been engaged before. And those are going to be structural changes. There was a lot of press about polling places at Texas State and making sure that the students had a place to vote. And after all the press and attention that was highlighted there, we know that Representative Zwiener is going to make sure that those students can always vote and always have you know great polling hours to vote. So that's a, a structural change we're seeing. We're also seeing all these newly registered voters who are going to continue to be in the communities engaged by the newly by their representatives and continue to be excited. So the work that they did, I absolutely believe, not only you know led to this great wave in 2018, but a structural in ways is going to help us continue to retain those seats and many more going forward. So to close, there's one thing that I want to plug. Having a great data team is essential to being successful in any election, and especially for a state party. 2020 is a really, really important cycle. We need as many resources as we can. Where can folks go to donate to the Texas Democratic Party to help support your amazing work? I really, really appreciate it, and we're excited to go to the data team. You can head on over to texasdemocrats.org. And right at there at the top, you can give us a sustaining donation, and we are excited to continue to grow our data team and continue to support all of these great candidates. Yes, for as little as $5 a month, you too can have a better government. So please check out the Texas Democrats website. Lauren, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. This has been great. Hey everybody, welcome back for this segment. We're joined by one of my very best friends, Joe Desch-Hotel of the Left in Texas podcast. Joe, how you doing? Hi, y'all. So the Left in Texas podcast has been around for a while. Uh, why don't we get started having you just explain why you started a podcast? Because you were kind of at the forefront of Texas political podcasts. You started it way back in the day when I first moved here. Yeah, a little too early, I think. Um, so it's just an excuse to basically talk politics uh, with a friend of mine who... It was basically his idea, and now he he does he works for ESPN and does uh, uh, esports. But um, yeah, he was working at the Capitol at the time, and we thought, man, t- Texas really needs sort of like from a, a, a progressive perspective some commentary, and there really isn't anything, and people have no idea what's going on in that building. So that's kind of how it got started, and then now this newest iteration is it's four of us. It's uh, Chris Mosier who is a personality in Austin, is a radio personality, you probably recognize his voice. He's also a producer, uh, which is great to have. And then uh, Carrie Collier-Brown um, of uh, Blue Action Democrats, which is basically southwest Austin, but they really uh, have been at the forefront of flipping some seats down there. 
um, and she works really hard, and she's in every single room. So if there's a politician in town, Carrie's going to be in the room. So it's been really great to have her on. Also, she's an attorney, so that always helps. Um, And then JD, who uh, basically... Uh, you know, I work with JD. Uh, he's worked for Bill White in the past and Obama before that, uh, but likes to talk a lot of garbage. And that's also likes to talk in general. We yeah, love you, JD. We love JD. But you know, uh, also you know, he he sort of quit politics to uh, to brew beer, yeah. uh, as we know. He uh, proprietor of Texas Beer Company, but um, JD. Uh, can't leave it alone, and so he's he's been a part of this podcast and basically uh, oversees um, our you know sort of the the niche and shtick of our show, which is that we go to a, a small brewery uh, to to do a live podcast, and so we record from a different brewery every every episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we have another couple hundred episodes we can do still <laughs> yeah. just in Austin. So um, yeah, that's basically it. We 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 feel like we uh, drinking is a necessary part of uh, talking about Texas politics. It often is, yeah. Uh, and we're talking today, it's September 28th, which is a Saturday. It's the third day of TripFest 2019, uh, which actually reminded me of the first Texas Tribune live stream that I remember was Wendy Davis's filibuster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you also worked really hard to get them in the room for a fundraiser that Wendy did, and they live streamed that. I don't know if you remember. I do remember that. I think <laughs> Evan Smith owes you a little bit of credit for how prolific their live stream game is these days because you kind of made it all happen for Interesting. You should tell them that. Yeah. I will. Uh, but yeah, no, I, and, and, and I've always kind of watched what they've done and thought it was really cool um, because they were just so far ahead of anybody turning news into like a digital platform. Hmm. And they've done obviously a really great job with it and with this Tribune Festival it's pretty incredible and I don't think you know Evan Smith needs anybody else to stroke his ego but uh, the team is is really good and has done some cool stuff um, and you know nothing you know better than the timing of this week to have it uh, with Nancy Pelosi moving towards impeachment finally there's something that rises to her uh, you, you know her standard of what an impeachment um, inquiry would, would bring and I think it's brilliant because ultimately you had all this noise out there and all of a sudden you know here comes something Nancy wanted the receipts and she's got them right <laughs> yeah. like there's documentation there's uh, a whistleblower there's you know which he basically just provided the breadcrumbs and then we can just go back and follow the trail and and it's all there and I think it's a it's a big switch, and to see sort of that happen uh, at this time, and Nancy being right here in Austin uh, today and tomorrow, when we're both I guess going to go to this fundraiser and see her, it's going to be really interesting to see what she says. Yeah, hopefully she keeps it lit at the fundraiser tomorrow. I think so. Uh, so actually, yesterday I went to a panel at Tribune Fest that was called the Republican Do Over, and it had Jeff Rowe and some other Republican strategists. Um, Jeff obviously ran Ted Cruz's wildly unsuccessful campaign for president, and then was a senior advisor on the campaign last year. And he kind of blew my mind because he was arguing that the more people that vote in Texas, the better that's going to be for Republicans. You've worked in Texas politics for a long time, and now we finally see this moment where we're a swing state. They're talking about how Republicans are going to go try to register another million voters. Is it possible that there's a million Republicans in Texas that they haven't found yet? Because it seems yeah, not, not that aren't registered to vote. No. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's 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 the funny thing because you know they try on both ends, uh, you know, for on voter suppression, and that now they're having to try to switch things up because they re, they're looking at these trends and they don't have enough voters out there, and so they're going to have to do something. And for a while, they've been able to hold it off by suppressing the vote 
of, of, of individuals that won't likely vote for them. But um, I think that they realize that they're, they're kind of out of those bullets, so to speak. Yeah, which is great for us because we have obviously this huge election next year where there's a good possibility that Democrats can take back the state house, and it's the last chance for us to do it before redistricting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully, we don't have to like hide people in the trunks of cars during this next redistricting session. Um, we have a huge special election that's happening in Fort Bend County. I don't know if you've paid much attention to it. Um, Dr. Elise Markowitz, uh, she's running a great campaign. Mm-hmm. Beto is in town to campaign for her. Um, if she wins, the minority shrinks to eight seats, and that's the lowest it's been in a very long time. Uh, why do you think it's so important that we do everything we can to win a special election like this, and especially to take back the state house before redistricting? Yeah, I mean, there's a big gap. I, mean, I think uh, Zerwas won that seat by eight points, and then, as you said, Beto, came, Beto actually won in mm-hmm. that district, so there's some hope for Democrats. Um, but, you know, I think it's more of a morale thing and really a sort of a, a media narrative thing because you see how even in, in even races where Republicans should be winning by like double digits, mm-hmm. when they squeak out a win, they just trumpet it like, oh, the Democrats said that they were going to win and look, this shows there's no blue wave. None of that is, is true, but it allows them to carry this. Uh, through, but if we can start chipping off some some special elections, in fact, if we do flip this, we'll have won all three special elections uh, yeah. that will that will be uh, be this November. Um, and so I, I think that from a narrative perspective, it's super important. Um, and to see our leaders out there like Beto and uh, Celia Israel, mm-hmm. uh, who's a state rep from Austin, yeah. um, who just was appointed as um, the new chair of the House Democratic Campaign Committee. Yeah. Um, and who herself won a special election when she first got elected. Right, that's right. Yeah. And there were a lot of Democrats in that race. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, so to see them, you know, working so hard and Celia always works very hard uh, for new representatives uh, and to try to expand mm-hmm. the Democratic uh, base uh, in the House, and so we're so close to flipping. I think it's it's really important, and we're seeing. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, I think uh, the representative uh, John Lang, uh, who had previously said he wasn't. Oh, excuse me, Mike Lang, uh, who previously said he wasn't going to run, has changed his mind again, mm-hmm. and so. So yeah. the text of this continues. Yes, exactly. These these guys are. Is there any end in sight for these Republican retirements? It doesn't seem like it. Um, uh, you know, it's a combination of obviously them losing elections, them getting really close to losing an election, and then sort of just kind of seeing the writing on the wall. And I, I think that also, you know, um, they look they're looking nationally because their their party is a very top down party, and they're mm-hmm. seeing what's happening uh, in Congress. And you know, being in the minority is not fun. Especially the way they've treated being in the majority. And so these guys who've been in Congress for 15, 20 years are like, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines and let Nancy Pelosi run the House. And and like, you don't even have a president to look up to. And so there really isn't anything holding them together anymore. Uh, So I think they may they may molt and fall back and uh, and sort of have to reinvent themselves. Yeah, I was actually in one panel yesterday and someone directly asked Jeff Rowe. Or, uh, no, it wasn't Jeff Rowe. It was Steve uh, Munisteri, who mm-hmm. used to be the chair of the Texas Republican yeah. Party. Uh, he worked in the White House for Trump. Now he's John Cornyn's senior advisor mm-hmm. for the 2020 race. And the question was basically, how does your party square being moral human beings with this president? <laughs> uh, and uh, Steve was kind of like, well, I could tell you don't like Trump. And the guy went, I was fine with Republicans until this started happening. And, you know, with impeachment happening... Do you think that's going to have any effect on our races here in Texas? Uh, because 
Trump does not have the support people would assume that he does here in Texas. Right. He's been underwater in all of his polling here. He loses to Joe Biden. He loses to Bernie Sanders, to Elizabeth Warren, to Beto O'Rourke. Um, so it seems like he's in deep shit, and Republicans don't really seem to be catching on to that. So I was just curious how you think impeachment's going to play with Texans. Yeah, you know, I don't think impe- I think impe- it's going to be slower than it is nationally. Uh, I, I think Trump is not very popular in Texas. The polls have him underwater, in fact. Uh, and I do think that's going to um, weigh on John Cornyn. Uh, I think he really has to make a choice. Um, and it's going to be it's going to get very awkward over the next few months. And we've seen that uh, even Cornyn now has a, um, a a challenger. I think out of the DFW area. I don't yeah, know if you Fallon. Um, yeah, this this guy is. Um, are you talking about Senator? Yeah, who's also considering challenging. Right, he's considering. But I think just a day or so ago, there was another guy, some businessman from I think DFW area, mm-hmm. who's challenging Cornyn from uh, from the moderate. And said he's gone too far off, and he is, uh, you know, aligned himself with Trump. And so, yeah, I, I do think Trump is going to become an albatross in Texas. Yeah, but going back to redistricting, this is something that you have talked a lot about over the years, and it seems like we finally have people paying attention. What is so important about redistricting, and how can we do it better in 2021 if we're able to take back the majority? Yeah. Well, yeah, I have a pretty intimate relationship with redistricting. I literally lost my job because of gerrymandering. I was working for Congressman Nick Lampson at the time, and Tom DeLay came in in, in an off year and, and, did, and you know changed all the lines to literally target what we called the uh, WD-40s, the white Democrats under 40. And there were several of them. Uh, my boss was one of these guys that got caught up in there anyways. Um, yeah, so so they just literally grabbed and held on to the house uh, for a lot longer than, um, you know, than they should have because of gerrymandering. Uh, and they set a really bad precedent that has unfortunately uh, been um, basically upheld by the Supreme Court in a couple different instances. Uh, and so it's it just shows you how one little thing that's happening over here has this tremendous effect. Uh, the House um, is supposed to be where the popular vote gets to speak, right? And that's what they say. Oh, you know, you have the House. like mm-hmm. So stop complaining about the Senate. Stop complaining about the Electoral College. But in fact, we don't have the House because you, when you look at how these Republican legis- state legislatures have drawn these congressional lines to protect themselves, um, it is uh, definitely uh, not a majority rule in any any chamber, in any level of the federal government, mm-hmm. uh, except for our U.S. senators. And so um, I think this is one of the main reasons John Cornyn has to be so concerned. Yeah. And you have an interesting idea about kind of reorganizing the U.S. Senate, don't you? <laughs> yeah, if we had time, uh, for sure, I would love to tell you how we should combine that to D- Dakotas because <laughs> we don't need two Dakotas. I mean, yes, I am pro Dakota consolidation myself. Right, but truly, like if 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 I had a magic wand, I would probably reset the states. Uh, I would probably combine Vermont and New Hampshire because. Honestly, I mean, when Vermont is like literally paying people to move there just to be like a, a part of the tax base, and like you can work remotely, it doesn't matter if you work for who Amazon or you can work. Please from, move here. Yeah, just please move here and freeze your butt off. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, anyways, for sure. <laughs> oh, yes, let's redistribute some senators. Let's get Puerto Rico in here. Let's get DC some some action. Uh, I'm all for it. Yeah, uh, those are interesting ideas. Changes. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I thought you were going to break into the Charles Bradley version. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, obviously we have a presidential race. Uh, you and I have talked a lot about it privately. Uh, we've now gotten through the Houston debate, and we're heading towards one more debate with at least 10 people. Only five candidates have qualified for the November debate. Mm. Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke are not among them. Oh, really? Julian directly said if I he does that. not qualify for the November debate, it'll be hard for him to, to keep, keep yeah. his campaign going. Corey Booker said if he doesn't raise a bunch right. of money in the next few days, it's going to be hard for him to keep his campaign going. So we're starting to see the field narrowing, but specifically about Julian, you're someone who has, um, you've known him for a long time, and you know a lot about the policies that he's promoted. I feel like we would be missing a pretty important voice if he's not in the race, and I was just curious what you think about Julian as a presidential candidate, and if you'd like to see him continue on. Yeah, I mean, you know, the that's the... That's the, the standard that they've set for the November ra- uh, races. I don't disagree that at some point you've you've got to be moving the needle, uh, and I and I think he's done some good stuff. And you know, looking at the way he seems to be positioning himself now, to me, seems like uh, he's basically given up on being Biden's VP because clearly he's just going to directly attack him. My thought is he's putting his chips in with Elizabeth Warren, uh, and in sort of by being proxy attacking you know Biden on some things and where she doesn't have to. Uh, but I think ultimately we've got a lot of talent here and we should figure out how to best use that talent through the next year. So even if they aren't uh, competing to be the next president, they should be competing to be in this next administration and they mm-hmm. should be competing to be on the ticket uh, and they should be doing everything that they can to help get out the vote in their respective parts of the world, whether that's uh, the Latino community mm-hmm. or that's the East Coast or that's you know geographic or, or whatever. People, uh, we need to figure out how to uh, act as a team to, to really get this thing done. Yeah. And do you have a top three right now in the presidential race? I mean, you know, I'm just like watching this unfold. I mean, I, I, I feel it still feels early to me, but in fact, it's really not. This is when mm-hmm. people like us are paying attention and other people aren't. And that's why it's still early. But, um, you know, I like Elizabeth Warren. <clears throat> I haven't really chosen anyone the closest I, I would have chosen was Castro mm. uh, but at this point uh, if he if he drops out um, I think naturally I'd probably Elizabeth Warren um, but I'd be fine with, I'm gonna be fine with anyone uh, any Democrat because uh, I've seen them and I've, I've seen them at this point in three debates and you know in terms of Joe Biden um, I think uh, Joe Biden's best strategy is to say I think this would be his sort of like nuclear if he said I'll only serve one term and my goal is to beat Donald Trump, and that's mm-hmm. what this campaign is about. Uh, and then look around the room and say, all these folks are talented, and you'll get to know them even more over the next four years, you know, if they choose to be a part of my administration. I think that could be something where he could sort of put it to rest pretty mm-hmm. early. That was something that John McCain talked about doing in 2008, and people have often wondered if that would have made a difference in the 2008 election, because people, I mean, they're literally, like, the original political meme was a video of things that were younger than John McCain. (laughs) Like the Golden Gate Bridge. Right, and yeah. And, 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 you know, Biden looks his years. You know, yeah. He's been in the White House for eight years. And those dentures yeah. do not fit well. I mean, so, you know, I, I think that uh, I'm not even saying he should do this. I'm just saying he is running for president. And if, you know, he was looking at his best strategies right now, it's going to be to take advantage of the one thing everybody keeps saying, which is that he's the most electable. And, you know, the polls actually show that, too. The polls show right now who are up against Trump 
and he still does the best. Uh, and there's lots of people behind him who would still beat Trump, apparently, uh, if it were be to help mm. today. But so anyway, his best advantage would be to to make some type of move and and you know cure everybody of their concerns of him, uh, you know, being there eight years. I think. Mm. Yeah. Uh, last question before we wrap up. We've got a big Senate race here in Texas. Um, I know it's still pretty early, but how do you feel about having so many great candidates running for U.S. Senate? I mean, for a long time, we didn't have people running in primaries statewide, and the people who were running were not particularly credible candidates. So it's really different mm-hmm. for us to see three really well-qualified women who are running interesting campaigns, MJ Hager, Amanda Edwards, and uh, Christina Sinzun Ramirez. Yeah. Um, and obviously, Royce West, veteran state senator, is in the race. So what do you think of the Senate race? I mean, yeah, it's pretty exciting, right? Um, yeah, and it is a, it's a very diverse crowd of very talented people, and that's a good thing. So, you know, it's a, this is the kind of problems I want Democrats to have in Texas. Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the day, the filing period goes from November 9th, I think, to December 9th. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's time uh, for these folks to, you know, think about, you know, go out there, see if it works, see if it doesn't. But while they're doing that, they're bringing Democrats together in rooms mm-hmm. and energizing them and, and educating them about this race. And so between now and November filing period, if they change their mind and decide to run for something else, like if MJ decides to go back, you know, or if, if there's not somebody already filling that seat, what I look at um, is where, where are the holes in our ballot? And mm-hmm. if we have some very obvious holes in our ballot, that's what we, you know, that's the best thing that some of this talent can do is start to fill some of those gaps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joe, it's been great to have you on the show today. Hopefully we'll have you back again soon. But please tell everybody where they can find the Left in Texas podcast. Cool. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Everyone should listen to it. Where can we find you? <laughs> awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. And you can find Left in Texas at Left in Texas Pod on Twitter. Uh, find us at Left in Texas a podcast on Facebook, and you can find the podcast pretty much on any subscription service, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Yeah. And if you have any recommendations for breweries that these folks should hit, definitely let them know on Twitter. They're always on the lookout for a well-crafted beer. Yes. Um, and make sure you check out Left in Texas on Stitcher or iTunes, anywhere you like to get your podcasts. Uh, they've been the resistance before the resistance was cool, and they make it even cooler now. So, Joe, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Texas Signal. The podcast was edited by Sarah Thuckby. To find out more about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at thetexassignal.com.